I had a dream this past week that it was like 10 minutes before I was supposed to get up here and I could not find a shirt or shoes. <laughs> and so they were playing songs and I was thinking, I can't get up there <laughs> if I don't have a shirt and shoes. And it was a major panic moment. And I don't know if that's some anxiety, so somebody's going to have to counsel me later about whatever that anxiety is. But welcome. We are doing, so we're doing this series in the Gospel of John. And the big question that we're kind of coming back to over and over again is who is God revealed to be? Who is God revealed to be here? And, and this isn't just a question for the Gospel of John. This is a question for all of life, right? This is a question sometimes that keeps us up at night. This is a question that we come back to. This is a question that who knows how much ink has been spilled, how many books have been written, how much thought has gone into this question. Who is God revealed to be? And this is, to me, this is the question that determines all other questions, right? Who are we supposed to be? Well, that kind of depends on who is God revealed to be. What are we supposed to do in this world? Kind of depends on who God is revealed to be. And so we are looking at that through this gospel. And there's a term for one of the ways that things have gone down, and it's called progressive revelation. And so we are, uh, we are in this moment, right? And, and we kind of have this option. We can either take the blue pill or the red pill. Is anybody familiar with this? There we go. We got one. The Odyssey reference, not so many, but everybody knows the Matrix, so <laughs> education. <laughs> I'm kidding. You guys are all awesome. So the blue pill or the red pill? The blue pill or the red pill is kind of this choice that has entered the common lexicon, right? And it's from this movie, The Matrix. And if you haven't seen it, go see it tomorrow. You know, wait till tomorrow. But this is a great movie. And so I was thinking about this movie and I was remembering whenever I saw it. This is one of those, uh, for a lot of people that are right around my age range, this is kind of a, a really central movie. And, and a lot of us remembered exactly where we were and what we were doing when we saw it the first time. I was in Durant, Oklahoma. It was a really big metropolis in Oklahoma. It's not named after Kevin Durant because he's the worst. And so, so it's in Durant, Oklahoma, right? And, and we were, I was there with some school acquaintances, and we were there for this contest called Odyssey of the Mind. And, and so these, these other kids were kind of nerdy like me, but, but they weren't really my friends because they were nerdy. And so, and so we were at this contest for Odyssey of the Mind, and basically it's, it's this contest where you do it's kind of a combination of science and arts and all these other things all put together, and it's this contest. And so, so we'd gotten together as this group, and these were kind of acquaintances, not really friends, and they all said, hey, we should go see a movie. And I said, hey, let's go see The Matrix with Keanu Reeves. That movie looks awesome. And they were like, eh. So we went and saw it, and the whole time, <laughs> I was in my seat, enraptured with this movie, right? And, and it comes to this point where he offers this guy, Neo, who is Keanu Reeves, the red pill or the blue pill, and I remember walking out of the theater, and I, I said to everybody I was with, I was like, that movie was so great. You guys ever have people just rain on your parade? <laughs> everybody else I was with was like, eh, that movie was lame. <laughs> so they just talked bad about it the whole time, and I felt really terrible. But, but then later, I see it's hitting huge box offices, and I felt very vindicted. Uh, vindicated. <laughs> I felt vindictive in the moment. <laughs> vindicated. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Truth comes out. <laughs> so it comes to this moment in the movie, and Keanu Reeves is this computer programmer, and he, the whole, his whole life he has sensed 
There's some kind of truth under the truth. There's some kind of thing beyond the thing. And there's something greater to know about all of existence. And he comes to this moment, and this guy, Lawrence Fishburne, is the guy with the glasses, and he offers him two pills. And he says, you can take one pill. This is the blue pill. You'll, you'll go to sleep tonight. You'll wake up in your morning. You can live happily ever after, not ever questioning the reality of the world you live in. Or you can take the red pill, and you can figure out just how far truth goes. You can figure out what really is the truth beyond all truth. And, and so he takes the blue pill, and the movie's over. It's kind of boring. but <laughs> Now he takes the red pill, and, and the rest of the movie is this earth-shattering thing of him discovering what is really true and what was really false and what he had built his entire life upon. And so for a lot of us, we go through this life looking for these red pill moments, right? If I could just take a red pill, suddenly I would understand things as they are. The truth, though, is a lot of us live in this state called progressive revelation. And this is a theological term that is often used for the way that the Bible kind of unfolds. So the whole idea of this is, and, and this is, <laughs> I wanted to point out, this is not a political term by any means. And this is kind of a, a little joke, and, and so it won't work on a lot of you now. But one of the things I like to do from time to time as if I know somebody's kind of like real hardcore in politics and they're like a very straight ticket voter. So like if somebody's very red straight ticket voter, I'll use the word liberal in a different context from politics. So like we'd be talking and I'd say, hey, put a liberal amount of peanut butter on that sandwich. <laughs> just, to see, just to see kind of how they respond. And, and a lot of times people will be like, well, I don't want to eat that sandwich then. <laughs> or if I know they're straight ticket blue voter, I'd say, hey, let's drive conservatively through here. There's a speed trap ahead. And they're like, <laughs> it's just a joke I do. So if I do that for you, then, you know, watch out. So progressive here has nothing to do with politics. It's just the word that describes what has happened here. And so the whole idea of progressive revelation is that God revealed himself truly in the Old Testament, but it was not as full of a revelation as God revealed in the New Testament. So further to that, God revealed himself to be a certain way to Adam and Eve. Then he revealed more of himself to Abraham, more of himself to Moses, more of himself to David. And so there's a progressive revelation of God going on. So the whole idea of this is that slowly and surely we're learning more and more about who this God is that created all of eternity, that created everything that we know. So this idea of progressive revelation really comes to a point in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to remember with me, we started with the first sign, and that was water to wine. And so this revealed some of who Jesus was, not all of it yet. So Jesus had this moment, and he took the six stone jugs, remember, and he turned this into wine, and then the seventh was the one that turned it into wine. And so this is a symbol. This old covenant is gone. The new covenant is complete now. So he started turning water into wine. The second is he healed this official's son. So, so we pull back the curtain a little bit more. We see God is opening up the boundaries. He is, he is reaching out even to these IRS guys that we don't like so much. Third sign is that he heals this crippled man even on the Sabbath. And so the, the curtains are going a little bit further back. Suddenly we're seeing Sabbath is not something to religiously obey. Sabbath was created for our goodness, for our, our wholeness. It wasn't created to be a law we just blindly follow. So we suddenly we start to see these curtains kind of draw back and back and back. Today we're coming to the fourth sign. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 6. And as you are, if, if you're 
following along, some people reckon the signs a little differently. So for our purposes, I'm putting two miracle stories together. I believe that they are both the fourth sign, but some people would count this differently. And, and, and that'll make sense when we get to the seventh sign. I'll explain it a little bit further there. But, but for our purposes, this, these two stories together, I think, are the fourth sign. Starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? They're not like bread carts following them around or anything. So, so they didn't have, where are we going to find food for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already in his mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. We're not going to be able to do that, Jesus. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Every friend group has somebody that's kind of like this. So you're like, how are we going to do this thing? And he's like, well, this guy's got five loaves of bread. <laughs> and, and I imagine all the rest of the disciples are like, yeah, that's, uh, thank you for that. That's very helpful. <laughs> Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, which means that there were even more women and children. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces so that, uh, that are left over. Leave nothing to be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of five bar barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who came into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I always wonder what that would have looked like. You know, like, you will be king or we will kill you, you know, and I guess that is actually how it went down. Keep going. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. The waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Does anyone have a different translation for that? Just raise your hand. Everybody's got the same one. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So we've got two stories here, and I, I think they're... They're hitting on two sides of the same coin. They're both revealing who Jesus is in a slightly different way than the other one. And, and one of the, 
the big questions that we're kind of using as kind of a diagnostic as we're going through these signs is we're asking, what does this sign reveal about Jesus or about Yahweh, and, and how can we understand that? So how can we understand what this is telling us about God? So, so the first thing that I want us to recognize here is that in his actions towards the crowd, that's who he reveals himself to be. So this is about his method of revelation. So I want you to notice what happens here. Jesus breaks the bread and he passes it out. But what does he not do with the crowds? He doesn't say, hey, now that I've got your attention, I've got a few things I need to tell you about. He doesn't say, hey, the book of Romans hasn't been written yet, but I've got a Roman road I need to share with you. He doesn't do those things. Jesus just gives them bread. And this is one of those things that is really kind of foreign to us in this day and age, isn't it? It's really kind of strange to us, but, but Jesus uses his actions to reveal to the crowd his identity. And so, so one of the things I want us to notice is that we, we again, <laughs> reminded, this is a real photo. They used a drone, and they got a photo of this. We find ourselves again in this kind of place. So if you remember, this is Scylla or Scylla and Charybdis. I like Scylla better, and I was talking to somebody this week, and they said they like Scylla better, so I'm going with that. I said Scylla last week, but I like Scylla. So Scylla is this dragon that is just looking to eat people, you know, because that's what dragons do. <laughs> and on the other hand, there's Charybdis, and Charybdis is causing a whirlpool. And so that's what Charybdis do, you know. <laughs> and so, so there's these two terrible monsters, and the ship is trying to find a way between them. And so this is, again, where we find ourselves with this kind of story. We find ourselves between two equally unattractive ideas about what this says about Jesus and about what, it, what, it, what the feeding says. So this is the one we find ourselves in on this one. Either the social gospel on one hand or, or full Gnosticism on the other hand. And so briefly, let me explain to you what these terms are. The, the social gospel was kind of a, a response to a purely religious teaching about Scripture. And so people began to say, you know, it doesn't matter if we take care of people's needs. All that matters is that we preach the gospel to them. And so in theory, this sounds, I think, kind of righteous, but, but they started to say, no, the, the full gospel is that we have to meet people's needs as well. James says, if you say to somebody, go and be well, but you don't help them meet their needs, then are you really teaching the gospel? So what happened is this social gospel movement kind of rose up. And it, it began to kind of go further and further a certain direction. Till eventually, some people within this movement started to say, it doesn't matter if you preach the gospel at all. All that matters is that you meet people's needs. This was a small group within the group that started saying this. So then, a small group that disagreed heard this and they said, no, we've got to swing that pendulum as far away as possible. So, so what I started to see, I was working in a homeless ministry, uh, we had people within this ministry that would come to us and they would say, what does it matter if we feed people? We need to save souls. And, and the whole time I was thinking, well, who can listen with an empty belly? <laughs> Who's going to hear what we have to say if we don't meet their needs? And, and, and so this, this has gone all the way over here to what is known as Gnosticism. And it's basically this idea that the world doesn't matter, needs don't matter, all that matters is a spiritual plane. And, and so Gnosticism is this idea that everything that's physical, everything that's matter is bad, and everything that's spiritual is good. But Genesis tells us God created the world. The world is good. This is a good creation. Things have been spoiled by our actions, but God still cares about matter. God still and, and so this is one of those situations all of our life we know 
The world has lived in the gray areas. The only thing, one of the very few things that is completely binary is computer programming, right? Computer programming, you're only dealing with ones and zeros. But when it comes to meeting needs, shouldn't we be trying to meet physical needs and spiritual needs? Is this really a choice we have to make between social gospel and Gnosticism? I don't think so. But that's what happens a lot of times when we're talking about this text. We start to say physical needs don't matter, only spiritual needs. Or people say spiritual needs don't matter, only physical needs. Full gospel seems to me that we ought to be trying to meet both. So, so this is where we find ourselves a lot of times with this text. We find ourselves between a Scylla and a Charybdis again. But what did Jesus do? His action spoke to the crowds, right? And, and this is one of those situations where I always think, do we know better than Jesus did? <laughs> Jesus met their physical needs because the question comes up to me over and over and over again. Who can really hear that God loves them on an empty stomach? Some can. Some can. But, but if you have bread and you say, hey, God really loves you <laughs> while you're eating that bread, I kind of wonder if that's going to fall on deaf ears. So, so this question, I think, is something we have to wrestle with. Does God have just a one does God just care about meeting the physical? Does he care just about meeting the spiritual? Does he care about both? But, and here's where the things change a little bit, his identity is revealed to his disciples through his words. So, so with the crowds, Jesus recognized that his identity was revealed through his actions. And so he did the thing. He took care of them. He gave them the bread. But when it came to his disciples, they had already made a commitment to follow him, so his words mattered much more with his disciples. So let's go way, way back. Somebody, let's go way, way back to Exodus chapter 3. So God has created a people of Israel. He's called Abraham out from all the other nations, and he said, you're going to be a great nation. And then promptly, Abraham's descendants went into slavery. So that was kind of a neat thing. And, and so these, these people were in slavery, and they're crying out to God, and, and God finally says, okay, I will deliver you. And so he calls Moses, and he calls Moses through this burning bush. And, and so Moses is arguing with God, who is a burning bush at this point. <laughs> and so he's going back and forth with this burning bush saying, no, 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 here's the thing, bush. I can't go do that thing you want me to do because it's just not going to work. I'm not a good speaker. And the, the bush says, well, you know, we'll, we'll handle that. And then he says, no, I can't. So finally he gets to this argument, and, and near the end of the argument, Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And he's like, I got you. You know, I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> I'm off the hook. Uh, then God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. So this is a way of self-identifying. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, everybody says the Lord here. Anytime you see that, most of the time in the Old Testament, it's a, a translation of Yahweh. So they just wouldn't even put it in writing. They held it so sacredly. It's Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call, uh, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So this happens in Exodus chapter 3. God says, I am who I am. And really, uh, I've got the Hebrew script there. Hebrew script is really beautiful, isn't it, uh, at the top? Uh, this is ahe, asher, ahe, and it goes right, right to left. 
And uh, it is I am who I am, but, but really the, the literal is I will be who I will be. And so I think that's kind of a cool way to read that. But, but this is what God says to Moses. He says, I am who I am. And, and so this is a thing that starts to occur throughout the Old Testament. This is a thing that God will identify himself as. And interestingly, Yahweh is a kind of a cousin. See how the first and last in the Hebrew look? Yahweh looks very similar to that in Hebrew. Hebrew is kind of an evocative language. It, it's kind of a uh, beautiful, it's kind of a, an artistic type of language, which it makes it hard to translate. But, <laughs> but Hebrew is, is kind of this beautiful language. And so when you see that, if you saw that, you would also think of Yahweh when you saw that word, it would, it would jog your memory. So this is who God says he is to Moses. Here are some other places where this kind of phrase is used throughout the Old Testament for God. Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 43, twice, Isaiah 45, twice, 2 Samuel 12. So these are all different places, and, and there's more than that. But when it came time to translate the Greek, the LXX is, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, into the Greek, and it came time to do that, they translated this over and over. They would translate it, ego I me. This is God saying, I am. Okay? So hold on to that. Also throughout the Old Testament, the Lord God, Yahweh, is, is seeming to be at battle with the waters of chaos. So you see it in Genesis chapter 1. God separates out the water. He calms the water. He pushes the water to the side. He, he, makes it, uh, he makes it different. And then we see it in other places too. So Job, Isaiah, Psalm, Psalm 107. So God seems to be always against the powers of chaos in this world. And some of the idea is there was a, a Babylonian god of water. And so this was the Hebrews, this was the Israelites saying, our God is a lot better than that God. This was some of them saying that, but it's also them looking at the seas and thinking, <laughs> that's scary out there. Look at those storms. We need a God who's bigger than that. We have a God who's bigger than that. So we see those two themes, ego I me, over and over, and a God who is calming the chaos. So, in this story, the disciples are going across this water. They're out in the middle, three or four miles out. And these are guys that are, you know, a couple of them are fishermen, but they're not used to being out in the seas during a storm. <laughs> That's not what you do. You don't do that. And so they're feeling this water all around them. They're looking at the, the waves and the wind. They're seeing the lightning and the thunder. And they look out and they're like, is that, is that a guy walking out towards us? And, and so they start to be a little surprised by what they see and, and they're rubbing their eyes and they're thinking, I mean, surely not. It is crazy. How could anybody possibly walk on water? And so when the figure gets close, they see this is Jesus and, and the words he says to them he says to them, ego I me. And our English doesn't translate it this way, but, but he says, I am. And so, so I picture these teenage kids that are following this Jesus. They've seen him do some miracles. They know the stories about who God has revealed to be in the Old Testament. They know this is a God who is against the chaos waters. This is a God who has said over and over again, ego I me, I am. Jesus comes into sight, lightning striking behind him, and he says to them, Ego, I me. Do not be afraid. And if we're talking about progressive revelation or we're thinking about a red pill moment, 
this is a moment that they had to stop and just think, is he really making that claim? Is he really saying that? We saw in the chapter before, Jesus had said, you know, my father is always at work. And that was kind of a reference to him being equal to God. But it wasn't this heavy. It wasn't this straightforward. It wasn't this blatant. So at this moment, Jesus is throwing the gauntlet down. And, and honestly, if you saw him walking on water, if you saw the seas boiling around him, I would tend to believe him, right? Maybe he's on to something. Maybe he really means that. He says to them, Ego I me, I am. Do not be afraid. And he gets into the boat and they go back to the side. And so from this moment on, I imagine the disciples, they would have gone back and forth in their heads, right? Remember at the cross, they all left. But they would have been going back and forth in their heads. Is he really claiming to be equal to Yahweh? And so what we see, I think, the question, what does this reveal about Jesus or Yahweh, really probably ought to be, what does this reveal to us about Jesus as equal to Yahweh? Jesus is making an ostentatious claim here. He's making a big claim. This is, uh, this is crazy, right? <laughs> but what he's saying is from now on, when you see me, you see Yahweh, you see the Lord of hosts. So, so this is maybe the question we ought to be asking ourselves. Further question, what does this reveal to us about new creation? It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> because uh, every time, so every time there's, uh, there's this guy, he's kind of a ghoul on TV, and, and every time there's an election season, this is what he'll say over and over again. I'm not going to say who it is, because I don't want you to not like him. But uh, he'll always say this, and, and the idea is, for Americans, the, the primary idea of how we decide on who, who should be in charge is basically who can make us the most money. Whether he's right or not, doesn't matter. Uh, and whether that's true or not, I don't even want to argue about the value of it right now. But what I want us to recognize is that Jesus here in this feeding of the 5,000 reveals a different kind of economy. This is a fundamentally different economy than the one we operate under. So, so if we lined up 5,000 people and we said, hey, everybody's got to eat, we would start saying, okay, well, who can work the hardest? All right, you get a couple pizzas. Who can't really work very well? Okay, you get a slice of bread. Sorry, little Joe. And, and so we would have this hierarchy, right? Because in our economy, basically what you can earn is what you're worth. But for Jesus, these 5,000 people are all lined up and they're all hungry. <laughs> and I don't know if you're like me, but I'm real whiny when I'm hungry. <laughs> and you picked up on that through my emails probably. But, uh, <laughs> but these people are hungry, right? And they're standing there and they're saying, we don't have any way to get any food right now. And for Jesus, it's not a question of who can earn this. It's not a question of who deserves it. He doesn't go around saying, okay, well, I mean, did you have bread earlier? I mean, can you, are you going to squander this bread? Are you going to take good care of it? And, and this is one of the things that we do a lot of times, right? And, and I want to encourage you, there's nothing wrong with not wanting to get taken advantage of. There's nothing wrong with saying, I, th I think people ought to be working hard. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. It's okay to say those things, but, but I want to encourage you, if you start to really look to meet needs, somebody's going to get past it. I can guarantee somebody in those 5,000 had some beef jerky in their back pocket, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> we could have told Jesus that, and I think he would have gone, eh, <laughs> not my problem. It's their problem, right? It's their problem if they're trying to take advantage of Jesus. 
and, and what this reveals to us is this whole new way of viewing economy, right? Jesus owns everything. He turned five loaves and two fish into enough with 12 bat. How does that even work, right? So we don't have to operate under these old economic systems anymore. We as churches, we can recognize God has everything. We're just participating in his economy in this. And so, so I want to encourage you to, to not worry. Yes, we don't want to just give all of our money away to some con man, right? We want to have some safeguards in place, but we also can only do so much on that. And so I would rather give, give to people in need and get suckered every now and then than not give anybody and never get suckered, you know? So this, to me, reveals that new creation has a fundamentally different type of economy than the one we often operate under. So after we've asked these bigger questions, we can come back to this one, right? What does this then mean to us? What does this have to do with us today? First thing, be like Andrew. Be like this boy. So, so I mentioned this briefly, but uh, Andrew, so, <laughs> so Philip, and, and this kind of, may, maybe these are good caricatures, maybe they're not, but Philip seems like the detailed person of the group, right? So, so everybody's like, hey, we ought to go over to Capernaum, and Philip's like, well, here's the deal. We've got to make sure and pack enough supplies. We've got to make sure that there's a good pathway. We've got to watch out for barbarians or whoever's out there. So Philip is this kind of detailed guy, it seems like. And, and he's the one with the practical ideas, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need people like that asking those kind of questions. But then on the other hand, you have Andrew. <laughs> and Andrew is this guy, right? He just shows up and he says, well... There's probably 8,000 people out there, once we count women and children, and we've got these five loaves and two fish, so we got it covered, right? So he's saying, Jesus, what can you do with this? And, and so I, I love the, the mentality, though, right? Can you imagine if we approached our problems with this kind of mentality? We don't think we have enough, but we're going to trust Jesus to take care of it. We're going to trust that that's his problem, and we're going to do our best anyway. And, and so I love... Andrew's response. Andrew's one of the guys that's been with Jesus from the very beginning in this gospel. And, and I love this boy, too. This boy is following Jesus. He's just probably, there, there's a crowd, there's a circus. He doesn't have anything to do, so he's just following along, right? And, and he's got, he's the only one that packed his lunch. <laughs> and they look out and they're like, hey, responsible boy, come give us everything you've got. And does he say, no, 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 this is mine. I was smarter than everyone else. I planned ahead. The rest of them did not. No, he says, here, take what I've got, and you do what you can do with it. And, and so we're going to take an offering now? No, <laughs> just kidding. No, and, and this is one of the disconnects we have a lot of times. We think this is just about churches, right? We think this is just about what we do here, but, but I would rather us go broke at some point and us invest in the kingdom in such a trusting way. I would rather us go out to the world and tell them God loves you as much as I have. And that's what this little boy did. That level of trust, I think, is what, what we miss a lot of times. He said, whatever I have, Jesus, you do what you can do with it. Jesus did a miracle with it. And for a lot of us, we get caught up, right? And we think, well, I don't, I don't have enough. I was just reading about this idea of imposter syndrome and how common that is among pastors. And, and let me tell you, it is overwhelming to regularly think, oh, I've got to give a, a sermon this week. <laughs> that's overwhelming. And there's this mentality of, I don't have enough. Let me tell you, that's how all of us feel when it comes to serving Jesus. We're all in that boat. But if we bring our five loaves and our two fish, then we know that he can do what only he can do with it. 
And so the first thing I think we have to do is be like Andrew, be like this boy. And the second, <laughs> based on Jesus' statement, the I am, he should be the starting and ending point of all of our theology. We're thinking about progressive revelation. We're thinking about a red pill moment. This is that moment. Jesus walks into the middle of a stormy sea. He says, ego, I me. So anything we think we think about God has to start with Jesus. Anything we want to think, <laughs> anything we want to say, anything we want to do, having to do with God, it's got to start and end with Jesus. Jesus is the revelation we've been seeking. Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. And so, so what we ought to be doing as Christians is we ought to bring everything back to Christ and say, how does this align with who Jesus was and is? How do we live according to who Jesus was and is? Jesus should be the starting and ending point. Jesus was the fullness of the revelation of God. And so, so you may sometimes have questions. How could God be like that? What would God do in that situation? I want to encourage you, the simplest, the, the fastest, the best way to evaluate those kind of big picture questions, go back to Christ. What is he like in the Gospels? What is he revealed to be? And that's the answer of who God is. So I want to encourage you whenever you come to those big picture questions, and we're going we're gonna to keep pulling the curtain back a little bit as we finish out these signs of new creation. We've got three left, and, and then pretty close to Easter. So, so that, that is really the moment the curtain is fully drawn back. But, but I just want to encourage you, use Jesus as your lens to see God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are uh, we're always overwhelmed at, at what you've done in this world. And Lord, we pray that you would continue creating us new. And Lord, let, let us be what you want us to be. Let us, let us honor you, and Lord, let us be the new creation that you came to make us into. We love you, Lord. Amen.